swing and a fly ball, pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner, Conine towards the wall, leaping and he got it! What a grab by Jeff Conine! Conine swings in the first pitch, high fly ball left field, deep, it's up, up and away, a home run for Jeff Conine! Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning! In right field, there's a ball hit by Jeff Conine! Past the diving Eric Carlos in the right field! Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Outside the box with Jeff Conine, it's August 20th, and... Last episode, we talked about awards. This episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the home stretch here collapses and some other really fun topics from the new MLB payroll floor proposal. I'm really excited to get your thoughts on that. A little bit on the infamous 2011 Marlins free agency. And then I'm going to quiz you a bit on the 1991 Baseball America top prospect list. I didn't even know they made them back then, but I did some digging last night and I found some stuff. So I'm excited to uh, enlighten you on that. But uh, Jeff, this is going to be a fun one as always and uh, plenty to talk about. Plenty to talk about. You're in your new digs in New York. Uh, Love and life up there. Nice and quiet. No dogs barking in the background. I can't, I can't make the same, uh, mine might at some point. So you never know. Uh, but pleasure to be here. Looking forward to another fun episode. Yep. So I've relocated to New York. I, I trade the barking dogs for car horns honking. Car so you horns, might hear that. Yeah. Ambulances, police. Yeah. That was the thing. I, it was my first night last night. Yeah. I'm just like laying in bed and one 30 in the morning, just loud car horn. And, and I'm not used to that. I jump out of my bed. I'm like looking around and I just realized that that's just the nature of the beast here. No one cares. They're going to honk if you wait five seconds before you go on the green light. Um, so I'm adjusting to that stuff, but the new digs is great. Uh, we just started, you know, going back into the office for just baseball. And uh, I did my first Twitch stream yesterday, which you, you're going to get a kick out of this. You get paid to play video games. So like, I'll play Xbox or PS4 on this occasion. We play a little MLB the show and people will subscribe to, to see us play and uh, and they pay X amount a month to, to subscribe. It's America. Jeez. <laughs> hey, encourage this. These are these are our people. No, I get it. No, I get all you can subscribe, people. It's, <laughs> uh, it's amazing. This kid's done an amazing job. He's uh, <laughs> carved out quite a niche for himself and now he's playing video games for money. I mean, um, I'm not good either. Uh, I'm not good. Well, you talk about good. You know, that whole Fortnite thing when that was going crazy. Oh, my son Tucker was all into Fortnite and he would watch YouTube videos. I don't think he ever donated, but whatever that name of that guy was, that was ninja. Yeah. He's making half a million a year playing uh, Fortnite. It was crazy. I think he's blowing that money out of the water now. Yeah. I'm uh, sure. So yeah. Yeah. I want to be the ninja of, of MLB the show. I'm just not good enough. So yeah, I've up, been man. grinding. Practice up. I said I might need to take some hitting lessons. I, however, you can do it. It's hard. They make it realistic. Like you, you, you have to guess the zone, like where it's going to be, and, and all that stuff. They they make it as real as Don't possible. Don't be a guess hitter, Arm. I keep telling you that. Don't be a guess hitter. So you weren't like a zone a zone guy. What was oh, your definitely a zone guy? So you were looking for a specific zone, not exactly a specific pitch. Right. I mean, there might have been certain counts uh, against certain pitchers that they were more likely to throw a certain pitch in those counts. So I would look for that pitch. I'd sit on it. But for me, 
if I sat on a pitch and I got it, I'm swinging no matter where it is. I mean, even if it's a ball, it's like, oh my God, there it is. I guess right. So I would be kind of overamped that I guess right. And I'd swing at it, even if it was a ball. So I tried to eliminate all that. I tried to, to look a zone because, you know, you just can't cover both sides of the plate. It's just too much, especially on big league pitchers who can put it on the inside corner, put it on the outside corner. You got to have to choose one of them because if you're trying to get to both at the same time, that's a recipe for disaster. As weird as this is going to sound in high school, I can't really relate to that as much because, you know, most of the guys are, are mid 80s and didn't have the best. Even the guys that threw 90 didn't have the best off speed pitch. So I just sit fastball and, uh, you know, they didn't even know where it was going themselves. You just kind of reacted. But with MLB, <laughs> with this video game, they all throw 99 and you have to legitimately guess the zone before some crazy ninja type of people can like react and move the zone to where the pitch is. I can't do that. So I have to predetermine and guess. And uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a zone guess guy these days. So uh, I'll let you know how it goes, but uh, I'm working on it. works out for you. I'm working on it. I'm patient though. Uh, but for, for today, we're, we're also going to talk about some of the collapses or imminent collapses for me. I'm just enjoying it. Right. Because I grew up a Marlins fan. And uh, as you know, for me, you know, you, you won it all in 03. I was six. Uh, I vaguely remember that. And I, unfortunate timing, my, my memory really kicks in in 2005 and 2005, we talked about it in the past. I thought that team was going to be really good. And even reflecting, uh, I look back at that roster and I'm like, man, you know, how is that team not better? Uh, but you know, it just didn't happen. It didn't come together. And since then, you know, I haven't had very many good seasons. I had a couple of sneaky good seasons for the Marlins in 08 and 09. And then they haven't finished above 500 since 2009. I don't know if you, you realize that I didn't until recently. So I went back because we were doing like a misery contest with some of my friends, like who has it worse uh, teams wise. And I took the cake. I mean, I haven't even had a 500 season. Uh, yep. I mean, and you can count last year, I guess, but I know you don't count it. I, it was fun. It was fun. You know, don't get me wrong. And, and uh, doing the Locked on Marlins podcast, it was fun. And that the team earned, you know, an opportunity to play some meaningful baseball games. That being said, 162 game marathon, no shot. They make the playoffs. And I think we're seeing that now. Uh, it, it's unfortunate. So we're seeing other teams now. And I have a blast kind of watching the Mets, the Red Sox, uh, even the Phillies uh, kind of scuffle a little bit. And, and they're all hitting a wall right now. Uh, before we get into the specific teams, it seems kind of unique to me that all of these teams are hitting a wall around the same time. Can you talk about this final stretch here of 40, 50 games? Is this, is this a point in the season where you sink or swim, or is this a little coincidental? No, you know, they call it the dog days of August for a reason. I think uh, just when you've got – the length of what we have to go through as major league players, 162 games in 180 days. I mean, including spring training, which you basically get no time off between with the start of spring training and the end of the season. There's a small little gap of one or two days in between, but usually you play an exhibition game uh, in between your spring training and your start of your season. It's a grind. It's a, it's a serious, serious grind, but uh, not only mental, not only physically, but mentally. And so if you get nicked up during the season, you, you hit a bag wrong, you twist an ankle or, and you're a guy that wants to stay in the lineup, that, that ankle is going to bother you for the entire year. You don't have the luxury to stay off of it for two weeks and say, I'm going to get this better because you're missing games. You're missing 12 games in that, in that time period. So 
for the guys that really want to be out there, they're going to be nicked up all year long. Uh, so you're fighting that. And then just the mental grind of a baseball season. I mean, it's just so hard to hit a baseball and to have your focus and concentration last every single day, every single game, every single at bat, every single out. So, you know, they call them the dog days of August because it just gets to that. It's almost like the, the 21st mile of a marathon. You know, you hit that wall. And then when you push through that wall, you kind of see the end of the season. You see the end of that marathon and you push through it and you come out the other side and, and you almost get rejuvenated. So these teams right now, I think they're having a collective dog days of August. And when they push through this, we're going to have a very, very exciting September, I think. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be really close down the stretch. We, we, we've talked about the, the Mets collapse and, you know, what kind of factored into that. But with the Marlins in 03, it was the opposite. You guys were already hot, but you really hit your stride down the end, too, because you had to. Uh, was it the youthfulness of the team that somewhat allowed for this just almost second wind uh, if we're going to make, you know, the runners comparison in August, whereas a lot of teams were fading. Uh, what was it about that 03 team that you didn't have those dog days hit you as hard? Yeah, just that, um, you know, Dontrell Willis uh, got called up that year and talk about energy. I mean, this guy's probably never had a dog day in his life. Uh, <laughs> you had Miguel Cabrera get called up that year, 20 years old, uh, hungry to be in the big leagues, just an infusion of that youth and enthusiasm, I think, kind of infected the entire lineup, the entire clubhouse. So when you see guys like that running through a wall uh, day in and day out, day out uh, I think they're just automatically and our bench, you know, our bench, those guys are super fresh uh, because they didn't play because Jack played his eight guys every day. Those guys got limited at bats. They knew their role, but they energized the entire clubhouse. They energized us on the field every single night with their enthusiasm and their uh, their humor and uh, their team. They're just excellent teammates. So that was kind of a, a perfect storm of everything together that year. And where a lot of teams, they might not have that. They might not have that clubhouse camaraderie where everyone's pulling for each other and, and trying to get each other through this time, or they don't have those call-ups that uh, of that youth that, well, we had, luckily we had two of the most dominant rookies ever called up when Dontrell Willis and, yeah. and Miguel Cabrera. So that, that's an easy injection of not only youth, but, but performance. I mean, they were studs. So when you got a, an aging team, maybe that that's going through this time and they're all going through it together, man, it's just, uh, it's tough to push through, but they will. And they're going to turn it around. I think last week of August, beginning of September, and they see the finish line and they know what they have to do to get it done. Well, well who's going to turn it around here? Because we've got the Mets who really look like they're scuffling and they've got a lot of noise around naturally as, as the Mets always do. you got the Red Sox who got swept by the Yanks, which, you know, that's, that hurts. Yankees are playing good baseball, but the Sox have been bad even before that. And that was kind of the shaking them awake here. Hey, you guys are really slipping. The Padres, they don't look great either right now. They're a little pitching deficient. I think anytime, and no offense, he had a great career, but anytime you're signing Jake Arrieta at this juncture, you're really desperate for pitching. And who would have thought that the Padres of all teams would be desperate for pitching, uh, but they are. And it, it's been a bit of a, of a mystery for them as to how they're going to answer those. And then the Phillies, all of a sudden we're like, okay, it's the Phillies division to lose. They go and get knocked around by the diamondbacks, which have been one of the worst teams we've seen in a long time. So it, it, it's really that dog days moment. I wanted to start with the Mets because there's a lot of storylines around the Mets right now. And uh, Steve Cohen, uh, the Mets owner 
seems to be taking a little bit of the attention away from the team and uh, almost making it about himself, uh, which, which is what I saw with that last tweet. I don't know if you saw the tweet that he had, but it was uh, to, to, to paraphrase uh, basically saying that the hitters have been brutal and that uh, it's like inexcusable. I'll, I'll pull it up right now because it is one of the craziest tweets I've seen from an owner. Uh, but like w- when you have an owner coming out and airing it out on you, basically on a public forum, that can't go over well with players. Right. I mean, like it, it just doesn't make sense to me that, that he thought this was a good idea. It's hard to understand. This is it. And I quote, it's hard to understand how professional hitters can be this unproductive. The best teams have more disciplined approaches the slugging and OPS numbers don't lie. Imagine your owner tweets that. How are you feeling as a ball player? Uh, awful, awful. Because that's the guy that's supposed to have our back. That's the guy who signed us. That's the guy who, you know, um, you, you're looking for for support and and enthusiasm. And I know it's a business, and I know um, we paid to, we are paid to produce but we're also human beings and we take this very seriously. And some of these guys are 23, 24 years old. They've never struggled like this before. And, you know, even though you think they're these confident men who go out in the field and they're professionals and they've been doing this their whole life. And, you know, we all struggle mentally. We all struggle in this game mentally. And, and when it hits hard, I mean, this game is the hardest to get back up and get back in the box and, and get things right. Because if you're not clear with your, plan at the plate and you're not clear with trying to block out all those thoughts of pitches and media and ownership and losing and hitting is really, really hard to do. So, and especially in New York, because I'm sure these guys are getting bombarded every single day from the radio, from the, from the tweeting, from the, 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 the beat guys, you know, this is a, a team that's always under a microscope. You put all that together and it's a difficult environment to perform in. And you see players that oftentimes they, they come to New York, they come to Boston, they come to these places and they, they can't really perform the same way. Somebody that comes to mind is Sonny Gray. Sonny Gray was, you know, the Yankees go out, make that big deal with Oakland and he struggled mightily in New York. I mean, he was, he was brutal. And uh, I remember he was taken off the mound one game after getting shelled and he was smiling, but it seemed almost like a nervous smile. Like it wasn't like a ha ha. I just got shelled. Like he's a human being. He's not happy that he got shelled. Yankees fans ripped him apart. He goes to Cincinnati and he had a great couple of years. He's scuffling right now, but he's been battling injuries, but looked like, Sonny Gray again. So I think it kind of shows you even David Price at times with the Red Sox, it seemed like that was getting to him. So you definitely see that component of it. But from the Steve Cohen angle there, too, I've heard people say, oh, he's it's like his employees he's lighting a fire under them. I don't think these guys need a fire lit under them. And uh, especially from a businessman who doesn't know what it's like to be on the field with them, who doesn't know what they're going through, as you just said, I don't even know what they're going through. And, and I feel like I have a better understanding than he does. That that tweet to me just seemed very tone deaf. It seemed like a fan more so than uh, an owner. And I don't think you can play both sides. Uh, if you want to be that fan, then be all hands off. Don't go in the clubhouse like he did recently, too, and and give them the pep talk as well. I don't think you can play both sides. And uh, especially after the, the Kumar Rocker tweet that was like, I don't make bad investments, blah, blah, blah. That's why I didn't sign him. And you know, my reaction to this was like, it sounds like Steve Cohen made bad investments. If he's that unhappy with, with the guys that he has on the field. Uh, I, I just, to wrap up there, your takeaway from that is 
it's nothing but bad, right? Like I'm not saying it's going to rip them apart. I'm sure the players are over it, but in the clubhouse, I heard Jeff pass and say, you know, the players didn't love it. And I'm sure that came from a player given, you know, his connections. I'd assume that, that we can corroborate that just from your experience, right? Like players didn't like that. No, of course not. Of course not. You, you know, you want your manager, you want your front office, you want your owner to have your back. And uh, like you said, they hired these guys, they, they scouted them, they signed them as free agents, they're paying them. And believe me, all those players are, when they're scuffling, they take it to heart. And it's not like uh, they have the, they're just laughing it off and having the best life ever. They are taking it to heart because this is what we do. This is what we do. We play baseball. We want to perform well and we want to entertain crowds. And especially when you, when you're in New York and you get the backing of that crowd and that, that city, man, there's nothing like it. So uh, it did not go well in that clubhouse. I guarantee it. And um, it's going to take a while to over overcome that and, and get trust back. And he's just starting. He's just starting with them. You know, it, it's, it, it's tough. It's tough. And uh, it's going to be interesting. Might, to you know, that might make an effect when you go out to get a free agent uh, and yeah. you know that, Hey, if I don't perform, I'm going to get lambasted by my owner. That might affect people going to New York to the Mets uh, in further free agent years. Well, absolutely. Because like you said, you already have to deal with being, you know, ridiculed by the media. And and like, I'm sure as you experienced going through that Mets collapse, it must've been just like on fire in New York. Just everything must've been crazy. The end of the world type of thing. And now imagine your owners, like these guys suck. It just makes it even worse. And you feel like you're not, you know, when you get out of the clubhouse, that's where, you know, you're going to get just things hurled at you and all of those things when it comes to just uh, the media and all of that, you figure you're safe in your own clubhouse, but Nope, you've got your own owner. That's going to treat you the same way the media does because he can't take his fan hat off and, and put the owner hat on uh, the next team too, the Red Sox. I mean, I think I have a little bit more confidence in the Red Sox, but coming into this year, I thought the Red Sox wouldn't be good. They have proven that wrong already, no matter how they finish this year, that they were better than we thought. That being said, I still don't really believe in this Red Sox team. I have a bet with some of the guys on our staff uh, that they don't win a playoff series. I, I just don't think they're built for it, especially going off of the mold that we've talked about. We've 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 hit on this, so we don't need to go too deep into it. But to kind of piggyback, because there's one thing that I want to tie in with Dontrell Willis and, and, and the young pitchers is I was debating one of the guys on our staff, Colby Olson, who's a Red Sox fan, and I said, the Red Sox don't have what it takes pitching wise right now. The bullpen's kind of meh. Yes, Chris Sale's back and they took their time so that he can take a workload, but I still think he's going to have to be, you know, tread lightly. The third guy for them might be Tanner Houck, who is a rookie who's barely thrown. He's looked fantastic since he's come up, but he's a rookie. You can't really rely on a rookie as your as your go-to guy, as your third guy in the rotation, right? In the postseason, if that's an option. Like that can't that that's so rare, right? In your experience, how often does a rookie come up late in the season like Willis did and and play an integral role in your pitching staff for a really competitive postseason team? Well, uh, not often, not often. And it takes a special guy to come up as a rookie and especially in a market like Boston to thrive uh, and to do well. But you know what? He's going to be leaning on his teammates. He's going to be leaning. There's a lot of veteran leadership there. Um, Chris Sale is going to be an amazing uh, tutor and guide for him uh, to manage the expectation in a market like Boston coming this last month of the season and the push they're going to have to make. They're only half game out of the wild card right now. So yeah. of the four teams we're going to be talking about, the Mets, 
Phillies, uh, Padres, and Red Sox, I give them the best chance of making the postseason just because the middle of that order is absurd. I mean, they have arguably the best three hitters in a row uh, in the middle of that Red Sox lineup. Their production is is off the charts. And the other teams are lacking that as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at the, the rookie for the Astros, uh, Garcia, right now, he's getting it done for a team that is – that is absolutely in the playoff hunt. Uh, he's had a phenomenal season. And so I think rookies, it, it's all dependent on their makeup, their makeup and the support they're getting in that clubhouse. I totally think that the guy's got the talent. Uh, if he's got the the mental toughness and the leadership to get him through, he can perform. There's some guys that just go out there and you can see it and, and they don't seem phased that it's a playoff game, right? I'm sure you, you experience that like Miggy, for example, Biggie had no idea we were in the playoffs. He went up there <laughs> yeah. like, "Hey, we're in Yankee Stadium. Yeah, this is cool, man." Like, he was the coolest, calmest guy on the field, probably because he didn't even care it was a playoff game. It was baseball. He's a baseball player. He went out there to play a baseball game. That's it. It, it. You could see that too, and I always go back to that Clemens at bat because it's just like he doesn't know that he's facing a future Hall of Famer. He's not showing it, at least. You know, he's brushing you back with an upper nineties up and in. He just gets right back in the box. And that's what I admire the most. And and there are guys, like you said, I think that's a really good point is it is case by case. The average rookie, I would say I'm not leaning on that guy, but there's there's dudes that just they have that it factor. And maybe Tanner Houck is that guy. It's ironic that you mentioned the sale mentoring. A lot of people compare him to a righty sale because they have a similar delivery, similar stuff. And uh, he's been getting some really good swings and and swing and miss kind of numbers Uh, with the Padres real quick too. uh, their pitching is an issue. Uh, They now move Fernando Tatis to the outfield, the Cincinnati Reds, who, you know, I'm, I'm big on, they, they lost two out of three to the Cubs, which is tough, but now they've got four with the Marlins throttled the Marlins yesterday. Uh, I think they're going to come out hot and, and, you know, they got, they realized, Hey, we lost two out of three to the Cubs. We can't take any team lightly. And I think they're not going to take the Marlins lightly and, and, and play them tough. But the Padres with the pitching issues they have uh, with Tatis now playing right field, I just feel like there's, there's just disarray is the word I can use. And uh, I feel like that that's kind of making its way into the in-game things that are happening. I just, it just seems a little chaotic for them right now. Yeah. You know, when you look at a disorganized team like that, um, and especially in the pitching staff, we've talked so much about the importance of having three or four guys, three guys at least in your starting rotation that are above average to get to the playoffs. Their offense uh, is kind of disjointed right now. You know, Machado's been inconsistent. Tatis, of course, is a superstar, but he's only played 88, uh, 89 games because of injuries. So it'll be interesting to see his numbers as he transitions to the outfield maybe he'll be totally fine and and keep on his mvp type season but you don't see that that unity type clubhouse for me i mean i could be totally wrong they could have the best clubhouse ever but you know when you look at uh like you said getting jake arietta that's not a desperation move but jake arietta was one of the best pitchers in baseball for about three or four years well that that fell off so when you see (laughs) a team like this get a desperate, not desperation move, but try to sign a guy. And they always say, Oh, the change of scenery, the change of scenery. I think a guy is what he is at that point in his career. Change of scenery is not going to do anything. There are rare instances where someone might get an injection of life and like have a good stretch, but, and, you know, for the Padres sake, I hope Jake Arrieta comes in and is what he was six, seven years ago because he was lights out, but uh, I just don't see it happening. 
I think calling it a desperation move, frankly, is is not wrong. I, I know you're you're not saying that, but to me, it is. I mean, he, he had a seven ERA and was released by the Cubs, and then in his first outing with the Padres, gives up five run runs and three and a third. I, I think this is going to be a brief experiment, and then what's next? You know, I understand what they're trying to do. You have a guy with the pedigree that's been there, that's one uh, that that knows what it takes to to get to the postseason, but. At the end of the day, you got to be able to execute pitches and, and do things. And uh, it just has not been the case. Uh, the other thing that is interesting, new development, is that Zach Wheeler, we we're talking about the Cy Young, he got shelled by the Diamondbacks in his last outing. And that's got to be concerning because Aaron Nola has been a disappointment this year. And I love Aaron Nola, but he just has not been Aaron Nola this year. And now Wheeler, I mean, it's one start. You know, we'll see how he bounces back. But if Wheeler's not, an ace down the stretch here, the Phillies might be in trouble. Phillies are definitely in trouble because they don't have that, that booming offense that can make up for lack of bad pitching. Uh, you look at those two guys at the top of that rotation to, to shut things down and give you a chance every time they take the mound. Well, if they're not performing, Phillies lineup to me is not scary at all. You know, they're kind of pitching around Bryce Harper. He's got a huge on base percentage because he's walking so much. I would pitch around him all day long. Yeah to get to the two and, and four guys in that lineup. Uh, and that's all there is to it because they're not an explosive team that's going to put up huge numbers offensively when your pitching's bad. Absolutely. And especially when you're playing at home, it, it's a place where you got to pitch because it, it, it's a hitter's park. And, you know, I love JT Real Muto and he's, he's a phenomenal player and his numbers for a catcher are great. But we were actually talking about this, uh, an article that we put out, uh, uh, Javi Reyes for us did a great job on the fantasy side of this. And he said, you know, Muto is great, but if you're looking for production, don't draft a catcher this early because you can get more production from another position elsewhere. Well, to tie this into the lineup, Real Muto is an incredibly valuable catcher, but if, if that's the guy that's providing protection uh, or one of the guys that's providing protection for Bryce Harper, he's got a 785 OPS. Like JT's and he's a little bit down from where he normally is, but the value for JT is that he's a great defensive catcher and he hits pretty well because very few catchers hit at all in this game, as we know. So, you know, yes, they've got Reese Hoskins. Yes. They've got some other guys. McCutcheon's been pretty decent, but there's not that one other guy. You mentioned the big boppers, like three straight guys that are really good. I, to me, it's like you said, Bryce Harper. And then it's, it's a drop off a little bit and, that's a problem. I, and it's manifesting itself in the walk rates with Bryce Harper. I, I think you're totally right. And when you're not forced to pitch to Harper, you're not forced to pitch to the best player in their lineup. It puts a lot of pressure on the other guys to step up. Alec Bohm has been really bad after a great freshman or freshman year, a great rookie season. You know, it, there's a lot of guys that just have not been uh, as good. And I, I think the Phillies are in trouble. And all of a sudden the Braves without Ronald Acuna are red hot and I got to give you uh, I got to give you a hat tip here. After you mentioned Freddie Freeman uh, for potential MVP, he bolstered his case by hitting for his second cycle, his second. The Marlins have zero cycles in their franchise's history. Uh, I don't know how close you ever got, but Freddie Freeman, he has two. It's insane. I mean, that guy's a stud in the clubhouse. He's stud on the field. And I guarantee you they've leaned on him big time this year because not only did they use, lose Acuna, Marcelo Zuno was having – he was in the league leaders in just about every category when they lost him for his domestic abuse uh, case. So 
take two of those huge pieces out of their lineup. Albies has been absolutely phenomenal. Oh my Freddie God. Freeman has been absolutely f- phenomenal. Uh, the Braves continue to do it every single year. I don't know what their formula is. It's like one of those teams that even though they switch personnel around, they always are at the top of that leaderboard in the national league East, just like the Rays, just like, like the A's, you know, they don't have those two other two teams don't have the payroll that the Braves do, but shifting all these pieces around, they've got a formula that that's wins. They always win. And Freeman seems like one of those guys that starts slow and then just goes off at the end. It, it, it was, it seems like there's certain players that do that. Were you a hot early in the season guy and then low in the middle and hot again at the end? Like, did you have, there's some players that just are notoriously bad in certain months, good in certain months. Were, were you that way at all with anything? And I'm sure you saw plenty of players that were that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I can't tell you what my numbers were, but I was a slow starter. I thought my Aprils were usually uh, pretty awful. And then uh, May, June, July, I think were probably my best months. Um, August, I don't know. I don't think I was that great in August and September. I don't even know. I can't remember. But, um, you know, it did take me a while to get going uh, offensively. And then I picked it up. And then I'm sure you're looking my numbers up right now. You're going yep. to call me out on it. And No, you're right. You're right. So April, March. You were a 751 OPS guy, 266 hitter, May 283, June 300, July 301, uh, and then August 288. Uh, OPS peaked in June for your career, 853, which is pretty damn good. 300, 368, 485 uh, slash line. Man, if every month was June, you, you could be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah, probably would have been. <laughs> but I mean. My birthday it, month, always good on the birthdays. Oh, good on the birthday month. There you go. And uh, even first half, second half, uh, those are more even, which is interesting. So it seemed like just the first month for you, uh, which, which is, it's funny how how often players seem to have a good idea of, you know, when they were a better or, or when they weren't. And you, you can kind of feel it. And I wonder how much of that, though, is almost a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, too. You're just like, oh, yeah, I always have to get started a little bit. And you're not put, maybe putting as much pressure on yourself or holding yourself to as high of a standard in April or May. Is that is that something? No, or is that's it just never kind of a conscious thought ever. Not yeah. ever. I mean, I'm. Coming out of spring training, I never did that well in spring training. I never felt like uh, I'm I'm hitting the ground running at a spring training. Like I'm on fire right now. I'm going to start this season gangbusters. I was still trying to figure things out, even though spring training is so long and so arduous. Um, that was just me. I don't even know if I could put a, a finger on why specifically. Maybe I didn't like cold weather. I don't know. <laughs> Well, and real quick before we get to the uh, the new payroll floor proposition, which I absolutely love uh, to talk about here, uh, what what do we have on the jersey here? I see red. I'm going to guess Cincinnati Reds uh, because of your obvious Cincinnati Reds tie. But uh, let's see what 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 team do we have right now? Not the Reds. What team is it? Uh, Red Sox. Yep. Okay. Okay. I thought you know since we're going to be talking about teams today and and the Red Sox for me have the best chance of the four teams we talked about to make it to postseason, which I like. Uh, <laughs> so I thought I'd wear a Red Sox today, but can you give me a timeline? Oh, it's an old one. An old one. Um, like old, old. Yeah. Well, not old, old. It's old, not old, old, but it's old. Like 60s, 70s, 80s, yeah. 60s. Yeah. 60s yeah, you got it. Wow. I got, I, I, that's the best I've done so far. Nice. Nice. That was good. That was good. 
Oh, and there's your dog bark to give me a little there's bit Lucy. of affirmation there. <laughs> so that's that's your dog Lucy, by the way. How are you enjoying the new pup? She's what already one or two? Uh, she's only tw- twelve, thir- 14 months, but she's awesome. Oh, uh, you're, 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 you're doing the, the baby treatment where you, you you say the amount of months until it's like two years. I never yeah. understood that. Well, you can't say one. Because in dog years, I mean, two months is a, a big chunk of time for them. So I yeah. say 14 months. Yeah, two months is like a year. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, my, my guys are nine now, uh, but I, I don't know, 63 months. Uh, but no, there you go. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't even know how many months that is. 108 months. I don't know. But Yaz, the only other guy to hit hit for the Triple Crown besides Miggy, right? And that, which is crazy. So Miggy no, hit for the, the only guy. I got a, I got a baseball signed by all the triple crown winners. No, I mean, since then, in the last, like, since what was oh, it? Yeah, yeah. Seven, it was 67 Yaz and then Miggy. And those are the last two guys in the last 60 years, right? That's it. That's crazy to me. And that's, that's what crazy. makes Miggy so incredible in today's era too. Uh, I know I had texted you like better career Pujols or, or Miggy. And you said Pujols, which I agree because the 10 year stretch is so amazing. But in terms of accolades, that triple crown gives Miggy a, a pretty good, like gives him an argument at least uh, to be like the best right-handed hitter of, of this, the 30 year stretch. But what, what made Yaz so special um, in, in the sixties in terms of, of what he was able to do and, and what stood out to you to, to, to go get that autograph? Well, I mean, not only is he an iconic player, uh, like we said, the triple crown, but uh, defensively, I don't know if people realize how good he was in the outfield. I mean, he was one of the best outfielders of all time. And for me, he just seemed like that embodiment of baseball, like a a gamer type guy that was a quiet uh, performer that goes out there every single day. He was just kind of my style of player, uh, I would say. And, you know, I didn't obviously – see him play much. I've seen highlights and things like that. And I mean, when you think of iconic baseball players and iconic stadiums and iconic franchises, uh, it doesn't get much better than Carl Yastrzemski. How many times do you think he was an all-star? Um, it's probably not as many as I thought, because you're going to, you're looking at those numbers. I can see you. You're opposite. Opposite. Think the opposite. 19 times. 18 18 times, seven gold gloves to, to, to back up your defensive point there. Seven gold gloves, a triple crown, an MVP, and he shares a, a very awesome distinction that you have, which is all-star MVP. But it took him 18 cracks to get an all-star MVP. It only took you one at bat. So One at bat. Jeff Kona and Carl <laughs> Yaskramski. Uh, but that's an awesome one. That's an awesome. That's one that you got to put like – Oh, in a special area because it's also great. You know, my San Francisco Giants, his grandson now is is an integral part of this San Francisco Giants team. Uh, it's pretty cool to see the lineage there. And their swings are pretty darn similar. If you see it side by side, they're pretty darn similar. So it's been pretty awesome to see Mike Jaskramski have some success at the big league level. Yeah, not a bad uh, swing to emulate there. And you know, I want to touch on the Giants just for a second because what they're doing still, we talked about, you know, I know they're your favorite team uh, this this far, and, and they've, they've stuck up to it. We've talked about them for weeks now, and they're still the best record in the major leagues. They lead, they're second in major leagues in home runs, which is a very kind of uh, interesting stat because they don't have one player with over 20 home runs. Second place, so crazy. second place is the Toronto, or I'm sorry, the first place in the major leagues, Toronto Blue Jays who I think have two or three more home runs than the San Francisco Giants, but they have five players with plus 20 home runs led by 
Vlad Jr. with 35. Yeah. The Giants do not have one player over 20. It's, and it's, they, might, they might be the first team in 35 years to lead the majors in home run with not one guy hitting 30-plus. That is the craziest stat ever. Also, the Blue Jays were playing in multiple band boxes, which we talked about. They were like switching off from band box and Dunedin to band box and Buffalo. Uh, and not to take away, like Vlad has been amazing, but there's not that balance. They have, and you've brought this point up before, but I think it's gotten even more crazy now since, now that Long goes back to double-digit homers. They have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine dudes with double-digit homers. And they're probably going to have 10 if Steven Duggar comes back 11 like with Austin seven, Slater. Like seven of those are 15 plus. How is that possible? <laughs> and all of these dudes are 33, 34 years old for the most part. Posey, Belt, and, Solano. And they play in the most difficult ballpark in the big leagues to hit home run in. You think so? No, it's, I mean, is it that, statistically? Show it. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I don't, it makes sense. I don't know what it's called now, but Pac Bell was the bottom of the. There was one maybe below, maybe Comerica before they moved the fences in uh, that still might be down there. But I think, um, is it still called Pac Bell Park? I don't it was know. AT&T. And yeah, I think it's AT&T still, or I don't even know at this uh, point. Uh, whatever. So anyway, they're always bottom three of the toughest or top three, if you want to say that top three toughest places in the big leagues to hit home runs. And the Giants are leading right now. What is it? The wind? I know it's deep in center. They've got the kind of a wall and right out there and center, right center. Jets out. Yeah. It's a long ways away. You got the wind coming off the water. It's just a hard place to hit home run. It's a great place to hit for the cycle though. Benji Molina even did it because you get that carom off the wall, the weird way. And that must've been hard to play. I don't know if you ever played right out there, but that must've been difficult if you ever played right in San Francisco. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting angles. They Weird the caroms. Brick, the brick up top. They got a fence down below. It's just a. That's why you see a lot of triples there because it the ball gets away from guys and it gets away by fifty yards, not just a few feet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So real quickly too, I want to get to the payroll floor proposal, which you know that that was something that I think would be great for baseball, and there's definitely some moving parts to it. Uh, but essentially, to, to paraphrase, it's it's going to be lowering the the luxury tax threshold, which would, of course, make teams like the Dodgers, they probably hate it. Uh, and they're going to be taxed heavier for going through that threshold, but they also don't care. They're way over the luxury tax threshold. And most of the other teams are avoiding it anyways. But in, in part of that, you're going to have other teams that have to be at least at $100 million in their payroll. Is this feasible? Do we think that this, this could happen? Um, and do you think it would be the right way to try to restore some competitive balance in baseball? Um, I don't know. You can put a floor on if you want, you can put a floor, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the teams that have to spend a lot more than they're spending right now, will use that money to get good players. I mean, we're talking about a lot of teams in the middle there that are spending 120, 130, 140 million that have lost a, a lot of years. And, you know, yes. Okay. So now you're going to, you're, you're, you think you're going to be able to afford better players, but if your scouting is terrible, you might be getting the wrong pieces for a good team. Um, I mean, what's the Diamondbacks payroll right now? They're probably above $100 million as we speak. Uh, but then the teams that I think it's going to hurt, you got Tampa Bay, you got Oakland. They're perennially the last two in the entire major leagues in payroll, and they might not be able to afford 
to spend a hundred million bucks. They don't have to, they win every year on the formula that they have. So you talk about parity, these guys do it without the money. Why? They've got a system in place that works. And I think, you know, when you just start saying, yeah, you got to spend more money, you got to spend more money, that doesn't necessarily translate to wins. And I don't know if that really is going to do anything for the competitive balance, because if you're just throwing money just because you have to, I don't know if your heart's going to be into picking the right players to make you any better. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing is I see a lot of people say like, oh, imagine if the Rays can spend money and they're going to be scary, but that's not the race formula. They, they, they don't, they don't scout that way. They're not looking at which of the most expensive players that makes the most sense for them. And they it have seems- a market where they have, they have to do that. They don't have the revenue that the Yankees do. They don't have the revenue that the, that the Dodgers do. You know, when you talk about, all right, putting this floor up to hundred million, what's the Tampa Bay payroll right now? 60, 70. So they yeah. got to throw, they got to throw another $30 million into their payroll for one year. I mean, those are huge numbers. So where are they going to get that extra income or where are they going to get that extra revenue to, to cover that 30 million? It's got to be revenue sharing. Exactly. And that's where it would come and in. Now, I think there'd be more revenue sharing. Now you gotta, you're going to have the Dodgers have to, they're not going to be paying luxury tax, but they're going to give, be given money to, to poorer teams. So I don't even know if that's the, that's the, the end all, you know, we talk about salary caps. We talk about getting these teams uh, on the floor to spend more money. I don't know if that's going to translate, translate to wins. I just feel like, and I totally agree with that. I just feel like there's, there's almost too much disparity right now from the most expensive to the least expensive. So even if you set the floor a little bit lower, like at 50 million, that doesn't affect the raise, but you have teams legitimately right now, excuse me, that, that are spending less than 50, maybe put it at 75. You tell the raise they have to spend another five mil, but you have teams right now that like active payroll wise, it is ridiculous how low some of them are like 26 man payroll for the Orioles is $20 million. Wow. <laughs> like that's outrageous to me. You look at the Marlins, it's 26 million pirates, 29 million Indians, 27 million. And then that's you look crazy. at the 26 man payroll for the Dodgers. It's 140. So that's just some crazy, that's some premier league soccer type of disparity. So if there's maybe even a less aggressive version of doing that, I'm, I'm interested to see how it looks, but uh, you, you think this is something that the owners are going to shoot down uh, ultimately? The owners or the players? Either. Who proposed that? I think the MLB proposed that. Right? MLB the proposed owners, it. The owners proposed that um, because they want that that upper end cap. Um, and, and ultimately, for the players, I think it's attractive. You know, competitive balance aside, the players' association, the players' union wants to get the most for their players. And if you propose this and say, look, the, the total amount of money spent is going to be the same, regardless that all those teams with 25 million not to spend 75 million more per year to get up one. I don't know if that's, that's economically feasible for a team like the Marlins or the pirates or the Indians now, but if it is, and all the dollars are going to be allocated the same. I don't think the players will have a problem with that because now you're still getting the same revenue pool as far as dollars going to salary. But I don't know if it's going to affect, you know, just just label it as that, not a competitive balance type thing, because I don't think it's going to translate to a huge shift in who's going to be winning and who's not going to be winning. Um, because 
from 100 to 180 is still a huge valley as well. And you're going to be able to, uh, with the team that spends 80 million more is going to have better players than the team that spends 100 million more. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win more games. Well, and we saw that, you know, spending just to spend doesn't always isn't always the solution. And we saw that, excuse me, with the Marlins in uh, 2011 uh, when, when they went and, and just spent in the Marlins at that point had done a great job drafting because coming up through the pipeline was, you know, Giancarlo Stanton, Mike Stanton at the time, you had Yelich, you had Ozuna, all of these guys that were signed or drafted. The Marlins didn't even know. It's hard to know. But and Jose Fernandez, of course, too, at the time that they had their best players, their future coming up through the system that they killed it draft wise, which is funny because that's how the small market teams have to do it. But the Marlins going into the new stadium and, and, and I get it. And it was a really exciting time. It's like, hey, let's get some hype going around this team. Let's go make some big signings. And, you know, they went and signed it. And this is when you were in the front office. So you were part of this, like just being able to see it all happen. It was a crazy, exciting time for Miami, right? It was, you have the new stadium, you have the new jerseys, you have all this excitement. And I remember the first game was one of the most electric atmospheres I'd been in uh, for a Marlins game because I hadn't seen a postseason game. So um, they go get Jose Reyes, they go get Heath Bell, Mark Burley, and spend all of this money. And they're great players, but it doesn't mean that that's a good contract and a good guy to get for your team moving forward and to lock up long term. And we, we kind of saw that. Um, would that be kind of an example from your experience of a team that was like, OK, we need to spend now and not really going through the, the proper process, maybe of are we spending every dollar the best way we can spend it? Um, I almost feel like some teams would be in a similar situation here where it's like, okay, we got to spend, let's just go sign these guys. And it might end up, like you said, not even being the right approach. Yeah. I mean, I think the uh, Marlins payroll that year was close to a hundred million, might maybe even over a hundred million, uh, which was the highest they'd ever had by far. We had a glitzy new stadium opening up. Uh, ownership wanted to make a big splash by putting the best product they could find on the field at that time. And it was a good plan uh, in theory on paper. You know, when you look at the quality of players that they went out and got, yes, quality players, uh, track record um, stats to back it up. But it was almost like trying to fit a jig jigsaw, uh, a piece of the puzzle into a spot that didn't fit. You know what I mean? So when you are constructing a team, you got to get all those pieces, regardless of how much you're going to spend. You could go out and spend a 30 million on a guy that is absolutely a good fit. He fits right in with that puzzle and everything around him is perfect. Then other guys you spend that money on, you try to jam those pieces in, you know, the old square peg into a round hole and it's just not a good fit. And I think that's kind of what, and you don't know, ultimately you can ask all the questions, you know, you can see them perform on the field and they might have won before. You think, yeah, everything is good and ready to go. But when you get them all into your clubhouse, that puzzle may not fit. And I think that's what the case of the Marlins was. Well, I remember instantly one of the big storylines was what are the Marlins going to do at shortstop? They had Hanley Ramirez, but they bring in Jose Reyes. And it was this whole thing. Who's going to play third is this, and Hanley ultimately moves to third. And, and he didn't do well. And, and he ends up getting traded out for Nate Yavoldi. Um and, and that just seemed like a little bit of a storyline in itself. And then you have a Heath Bell who was starting to slow down a little bit, gets the big contract, hits the wall in Miami. Uh, it just seemed like some of those some of those signings, again, it was like, let's bring these guys in because they're high profile. Um, and in theory, it, it, made, <clears throat> it made sense, but it didn't necessarily 
uh, translate to wins. And, and we saw that firsthand. The team, then one of the last things I want to talk about here too is, is the Marlins, and I would have loved it at the time too. So I'm not going to act like, you know, hindsight's 2020. I would have loved to have seen Albert Pujols. And the Marlins made an offer to Albert Pujols. That would have been a disaster. They would have been handcuffed. I mean, look at what it did to the Angels, and they have way more capital. If the Marlins ended up signing Pujols, which I'm not saying it was close, but it was closer than I think some people may think. Well, we're, in, uh, you know, going over in the winter meetings that year who we wanted to sign as a free agent. And <clears throat> Albert Pujols was definitely on the table. Uh, he was a free agent leaving St. Louis for the first time. And you look at who else was out there. Uh, Prince Fielder was also talked about quite a bit. Um, and, you know, to be able to sign guys like that at that point in their career, they're both coming off, like we've said, Pujols, maybe the best 10-year stretch of any player in history. Uh, coming off that, Prince Fielder was the top of his game. Uh, he's hitting 40 bombs and uh, driving in 140 every year. Premier first baseman coming into that situation. But like you said, they're going after 10-year deals. And they were both uh, slowing down at that point. Pujols, you know, his legs, when I saw him play, was questioning what the hell his legs were because he was slowing down, running, even running. When you watch him move, he was just not moving as well as he used to. And you talk about a 10-year deal for $200 million. I think that's what we put on the table for our Albert Pujols. And uh, perfect thing to say is that, yeah, I think we get three good years out of that, four good years out of that contract, and then it's going to fall off precipitously. And then now what? Uh, you're you're got a guy who's going to be a, a future Hall of Famer, no doubt, but the production is going to fall off. And now you're saddled with that money and that contract for a long period of time. It didn't work out that way. Obviously, uh, Anaheim came in and made an offer that was ridiculous, way over everybody else's offer, and that's where Albert went to. But, yeah, uh, it would have been fun to see Albert in in the, the new unis down in uh, that stadium, um, but it just didn't work out. But it was close. It was, it was closer close. than most people think. And it probably worked for the better for the Marlins. And that's the part of the – the last thing I'll say on that is, is, is that's part of the reason why – I think the, the payroll floor is, is is an issue too, because if you're getting a guy that's, if you're going to go sign somebody that's expensive AAV wise, it's very rare that it's going to be a one year, $30 million deal. Generally it's going to be those long-term deals that maybe even a small market team can afford year to year. Like the Marlins could afford 20 million per year in that deal, but where it really kills a small market team is the five years in the back end or the four years or even three years in the back end where that player is not even replacement level. And you are paying him $25 million. Now that's money that would be a portion, maybe a quarter of your payroll going to one player who's not producing. You might as well tie the hands behind the back of those small market teams and, and, and call it a day. And, and that's where I think another component of this is missing is a lot of the big contracts, these big market teams, Mookie Betts, he's going to be under contract till he's 40. I don't think the Dodgers are expecting Mookie Betts to be Mookie Betts at 39 years old. They, they know what they're going to, they know what they're doing. They're taking the loss probably in the back end of that deal because it's worth it for the bulk years and small market teams can't do that. Last thing, cause I know you got to go, uh, you're going to Pensacola to go see Griff play and uh, really excited to get the report back from that ballpark and uh, everything they've got going on over there. Just wanted to really quickly gloss over the top prospects from 1991 Baseball America, where you ranked 45th. And really? yes, you ranked 45th. So that they, they woke up to uh, Jeff Conine. And what's funny is when I was looking at it, 
you, everybody I'm looking at, like where these guys were selected, it was like sixth overall, 10th overall. And then it was like 1000, whatever, 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 whatever you were picked. Um, and, and which was pretty cool because four spots behind you was Chipper Jones. Um, and, and it just like, it shows you too. There were some players ahead of you that I don't even think really broke into the big leagues. And it just shows the uncertainty around prospect rankings. And it's funny now that you didn't even know that you were ranked at the time, uh, with baseball America, I guess they were doing it even way back then. Did you feel like you had any kind of prospect hype in 1991 at that point to be ranked 45th in the, in baseball America's top 100? Well, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, after my double a season, that, that's what really put me on the map. I had a, I had a big double a season. Uh, I got called up at the end of that year. So um, that's what uh, kind of catapulted me into that ranking system, I guess. And I got a lot of good publicity and I was kind of the heir apparent to first base uh, when George Brett was going to retire. And, you know, unfortunately I got, I got sidetracked with a few injuries that kind of slowed my, my progress. But um, you know, back then it was the baseball America newspaper getting delivered to the clubhouse every once yeah. in a while, you know, we couldn't get online and check out all the right rankings and look at Twitter and uh, have something tweeted every two seconds about this prospect did this, or this prospect did this. It was like a, I don't know, once a month or once a week, whenever it came out, you're hoping you might see your name in there, or they have little blurbs on every organization and they might have a little blurb on you if you did well that week. And, you know, it was good to see your name in print. Um, but um yeah, I mean, it was uh, it's such a different world now. And uh, after my double A season is kind of I didn't know what where, where I was ranked or what um, uh, wasn't even aware of number 45. But um, I knew that the double A season put me put me on the map. It's pretty cool just to see some of these names through here. Obviously, some guys I've never heard of, but then you see a Chipper Jones at 49 and then some of those other players. There's only one other Kansas City Royal at that time, and it was it was uh, Kerwin Moore, uh, who was an outfielder. I don't know if that's if that's stretching you. I don't know if he was on your team or not, um, but you guys were the only Kansas City Royals on that ball club or on that top 100 list. And then do you know who number one was at that time? <sighs> Frank Thomas, maybe, or Todd Van Poppel. Yeah, he was supposed Poppel. to be a superstar, right? Yep. And then the one, next one year out of Texas, I think he was one, one, just uh, supposed to be lights out like a Strasburg type hype back then. Wow. And then the next year, the, the number one was Brian Taylor. And the story with Brian Taylor is pretty crazy, too, given that, you know, it wasn't really on the field. It was off the field. He gets in a fight, pops his shoulder out, never the same uh, with Brian Taylor. Did you ever really get to see him pitch? His story just fascinates me. But I mean, there was that Strasburg again type of hype around Brian Taylor, right? I mean, people were looking at him. I don't know. Was it the Yankee effect or was he really that kind of dude? I don't know. Uh, you know, and back then we didn't have ESPN to look at. For highlights. We didn't we didn't we had no access to see what other guys were doing. We heard the reports, you know, we'd read the paper and we see what kind of hype there is that way. But um you know, there was no coverage like there is today. So Brian Taylor, you know, he, the hype was this guy's going to be a superstar. And I think they gave him a major league deal right out of the yeah, draft. I think he they did gave him a major league deal, uh, which they did a few different times. That's not allowed anymore. But, uh, you know, as we spoke of before in our prospect podcast, you, you talk about even first rounders, about seven out of 10 will never even make it to the big yeah. leagues. Yeah. Seven out of 10, only 30 percent of number one's. First rounders, that's like what or every organization is putting all their chips in. This is the guy, the best guy in the nation at this pick. 
70% will not make it to the big leagues. It's a crapshoot. It really is. And, and so the last thing I wanted to ask you on that topic, but then I'll let you go to Pensacola is uh, the, was there a player though? You, you mentioned you didn't have the access to see video or whatever it may be, but was there a player in the minor leagues, a prospect that you faced or you saw, or you played with or played against it? You're like, that guy is a stud. And, you know, maybe it just didn't quite work out to the degree that, that you thought or he thought or anybody thought for that player. Um, it's so hard. That's so long ago. It's amazing. I was in the Meyer leagues 34 years. I take ago. your recall for granted. Yeah. On this, on this one, for sure. Stuff that happened I can do, but, uh, thinking about other players and, um, man, it's, it's hard it's, for me to, yeah, to really well, no, it's, it's a fair, it's you know, fair. Nigel, uh, Nigel Wilson was the number one pick for the Marlins, um, in the expansion draft. Um, and everybody thought that he was going to be, a stud, a superstar in the big leagues. And, you know, that's one of the guys, super nice guy, left-handed hitter, power guy, just never panned out. He just never um, could handle big league life, I guess. You know, it's it, you could have all the talent in the world, but if you can't handle all the surroundings and all the stuff that comes with being in the big leagues, uh, you're going to fizzle out. Yeah, you look at his numbers right before the Marlins selected him in the expansion draft. He uh, hit 274 with 26 bombs, stole 13 bags. I mean, yeah, that's a guy you're looking at to to potentially help you. And uh, then hit 309 for the Marlins in AAA before, you know, getting the call up. So it, it is wild how, how we always talk about how hard it is to translate from the minors to the bigs. But uh, yeah, so you were 45th, four spots ahead of Chipper Jones on the top prospect list. And then, you know, 20 guys ahead of you, I don't even think made it to the big league. So it's just wild how that all works, but I wanted to, I was, uh, I was, I was Southern Southern league MVP over Frank Thomas. So that was, yeah, that, that, that I didn't know. claim to fame. That's pretty darn cool. That's pretty darn cool. Cause that's one of my favorite all time players as well, but uh, that'll do it for today's episode. And when you come back and when we do the next episode next week, we're going to have a little bit of a Pensacola report from you. And the last time we talked to you were in South Bend, Indiana. So as Griffin gets, promoted. And as Griffin continues to rise through the minors, the destinations get a little bit better too. Uh, so now for you, you get to go to a little bit better of a destination and excited to hear about your trip to Pensacola. And hopefully uh, Griffin gives you some of the same treatment I got with three home runs and three games. I would love that treatment, you know, <laughs> right. I deserve, we deserve it. We're parents going up there, see him. He should put on a show for us. Yeah. I mean, it's only right. It's only right. So no, no pressure on, on Griff, but uh, hopefully he has a great weekend and uh, I'm excited. I'll be tuning in. And uh, let's see if he can keep rolling with that minor league lead in homers. And uh, it's been a special year and I'm sure he's excited to have you out there. So excited to hear about your trip and uh, safe trip up to the panhandle.